when you're upset about something, what's going on with you, right? What does this tell you about you at that moment? Bill Wilson, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote in 1952, if we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Wilson suggested that if we could identify and continually surrender these unrealistic and unrealizable demands, that we may then be able to accomplish what he imagined to be the recovery's next frontier, something he called emotional sobriety. Flash forward 70 years and join psychotherapists and best-selling authors Tom Rutledge and Dr. Alan Berger, who have taken up the mantle of exploring Bill Wilson's new frontier. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. Um, my Emotional Sobriety, Patrick Newman's Emotional Sobriety, maybe Alan Berger's Emotional Sobriety, and and most of all, we hope it's some, it's good, we can offer some help to you for Emotional Sobriety. I'm Tom Rutledge I'm with uh, Patrick Newman, uh, our producer, and Alan. Alan, uh, you had a presentation recently, I heard that you a camp a camp camp out yeah i was i was planning on flying up to minnesota and and speaking at the na camp out that they have up there and mm -hmm. very excited a good friend of mine sarah's up there and and you know the on friday the flight that i was originally going to take i moved it to saturday got canceled and pushed late because of what's going on down in louisiana so yeah. the flight originates in louisiana and comes up through there and i said look, I'm going to get stuck up in Minnesota because of what's going on with this weather. So I called Sarah. And also, I'm a little anxious about the new COVID variant. Me and too. Even though I'm vaccinated, you know, I have a three-year-old and an eight-year-old that can't be vaccinated. So, right. you know, I want to be cautious with that. So I called Sarah and I said, hey, what do you think about doing this virtually? And she goes, God, I'd really love to see you, but I totally understand. And so she ran it by the committee and they decided. And so they hooked up speakers in the tent and stuff like that. And I, I gave a virtual, uh, uh, a virtual talk to camp out. And I started, I had this, my, uh, my Bush hat on and my, <laughs> my spatula. I said, I'm not there personally, but I'm sure they're in spirit with you guys. Got a good time. You even, you even had your spatula. I was, like, <laughs> I was ready to flip a burger. It's, it was, it's experiential vir virtual talk there yeah virtual, virtual camp out and and um and whenever i say flip a burger i always think that there's a pun in that <laughs> yeah yeah we ought to figure that out sometime <laughs> so anyway it turned out great you know it was interesting i gave this this you know i shared you know recently i celebrated 50 years as you guys know and mm -hmm. i was i've been invited to speak at a lot of these conventions and stuff and just to see, is there really somebody that could be a drug addict and be still alive after 50 years? Of yeah. Job? Just, the, well, just the fact that you're still standing is your, is your notoriety. Yeah. It's, <laughs> this is really happening. I just read a portion of any published this book about God, when was it? Let me see if I can pull that up because it would be good to, to know the exact date. It's called living clean. The journey continues published in 2012, nine years ago. And, it, and to me, it's one of the first pieces of 12-step literature that takes recovery from after we're sober and clean, and now what? 
what does it mean to be living by these principles and stuff like that? So it's got these great, great, you know, chapters that really address, you know, the state. Emotion, emotional sobriety. Well, it, in many ways, look, chapter one is the ties that bind about the fellowship and issues that come up. Um, then the next one is on, uh, or living clean is the first chapter, then the ties that bind and then a spiritual path and then relationships and then a new way of life and the journey continues. And, and this stuff addresses things like our health as we get older and how do we deal with taking medications and, you know, what happens when there's conflict in the fellowship? How do we resolve these things? How do you, and I'll tell you, the emotional, even though they don't use the phrase because then I really wanted to separate itself from me. I'll talk about sobriety, right? So it's like emotional recovery. Mm-hmm. It's not emotional, you know, sobriety for that. But I'll tell you, it's, 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 you know, emotional, this concept of emotional recovery or emotional sobriety is just woven throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And it's made, let me just read one paragraph, Tom, because okay. you really, you and I really resonate to this. Mm-hmm. They go, uh, so we're talking about spirituality is practical. And they say, we learn that our spirit is not apart from us. It is a part of us. Isn't that cool? Beautiful. We That's get perfect. of the exact yep. nature of what is right about us. Listen to that. It sounds like yeah. a podcast we did, right? Yeah. yeah. Our fractured personalities come back together into an integrated whole. That's Integrity cool. is the state of being fully integrated. Our actions, our thinking, our feelings, our ideals, and our values all match up. It takes a long time for a lot of us to get here. And longer still for us to feel like it's real. More and more and more, we are able to bring our behavior into alignment with our values and beliefs rather than our feelings and reactions. That's beautiful. I mean, mean, and it's, well, well, I tell you what, it's validation to be that there's there's nothing there's there's nothing new under the sun and there doesn't need to be. It's like it's it's like these are it, these are this validating because it's like people who are exploring these things find we find our ways to, to similar similar truths. Yes, you know, and, and it's like it's really just and, and then, then you see, you know, one of the things that, that gets on my last nerve is when people get into debating and fighting over their mm-hmm. language. It's like, you know, religions do that. You know, it's like, like, you know, it's like it doesn't matter what you call it. Yeah. It's like, listen, listen deeper than that. Listen for the, you know, I mean, and sometimes I just listen to a to a to a good old fashioned Alan Watts tape just to keep in, you know, just to keep in mind, you know, f- you know, from the from the deep Buddhist perspective that we don't really exist, you know, kind of thing. But it's like it's it's but that's so it, yeah, it's everything about that is in alignment with what we're talking about. And and the and of course the other piece, the 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 foundation to me about what you know us using the emotional sobriety thing is not only have you used it for so long but but and like i like to say that that bill bill wilson was writing about it around the time you were being born uh which i i'm still working on that one it's uh but but the but the idea is it's you know the language is not the the, the most important part it's like it's you know it's it really is you know it's the old buddhist saying that i love the most don't be sure don't, be be careful not to to mistake the finger pointing at the moon for the moon itself 
you know, and that's where you also don't, you know, don't get carried away with the, with the preacher, you know, it's what the preacher is talking about that, that, that you want to align up with. So, so, but I, I love that. And, and I've always, I've always loved my, my friends, my friends through the years in, in NA, I've always loved them because they've all, they've always been so, so grounded. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there is that, there is that grounding. So it's cool. So anyway, that's my check-in. Patrick, how are you? Well, I'm grateful that I made some time this weekend to check in with, uh, there's a friend of mine visiting from Brooklyn, uh, who, uh, this is his first post COVID or, you know, post a long period of, uh, seeing his four walls for the last year, uh, vacation. And so, uh, it was my, my old college roommate. So it it was great uh, spending some time with him. And then, uh, and then I called somebody else in the program and, uh, we chatted just a little bit about recovery and, uh, he's getting his certification, uh, to be, uh, like an air, air, air conditioning, like install person. And, uh, which is a very involved, you know, uh, trade with a lot of math and, uh, yes, and it's, it you is. know, and with the uh, world getting warmer, uh, I I'd say that there's demand for it. So I think it's a good mm-hmm. field for him to be getting into. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it was just kind of inspiring because, um, you know, he's got, he's learning how to use his new brain, just like I'm learning how to use his new brain, my new brain. And, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of self doubt and, uh, you know, but I mean, we're all, we're all trying to push ourselves to being just a little bit uncomfortable so we can grow to fit the new container. And, uh, anyway, I'm just glad I'm always glad when I pick up the phone and just call somebody, uh, when there's no real like pressing reason to, but no, no, no fire, just, just checking in. Yeah. And it made me feel, uh, made me feel a lot better. And I hope that, uh, it was some kind of positive contribution to his day. So. Yeah, very cool. I'm sure it was. And that's a really that's a really good point, too, because one of the things I in terms of talking to anybody listening about support is, you know, uh, support is not something you just have on hand, you know, for the for the you know, when you call the SWAT team or the fire brigade. It's like it's like, you know, the way I, I always think about a guy I knew in recovery, you know, decades ago that used to say his his line his you know, we all we all think we all try our best to be very clever. And his clever line was which was I thought was very clever. He, he said, I call my sponsor every day that way. When I have a stupid question, it doesn't show up so much, you know, and, and it's like, and I just love that concept that basically he made it a regular part of what he did. So that, so that basically it didn't have to be, it really, what I got out of that was it didn't have to be a major decision. Does this qualify for a support call or not? And then I talk about self-doubt you know, I've worked with so many people, you know, and Alan, I bet you can identify with this too. I've worked with so many people who basically, when you're dealing with, with low self self-esteem anyway, that find they're, they're willing to be there on the other end for other people for support, but the, the, it's a real challenge initially to get them to, to know that, you know, and you can't wait around to feel like you're, you know, you're good enough and you're worth it. You just have to do it. You know, and and you learn it from doing that because you realize after a while you realize how people respond to you. People, you know, and it's not even like it's a big, you know, people like to help, you know, and so give them a chance is what I say to people. Give people a chance to help you, and 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 I love what you're saying, Patrick. It's just 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 to just to touch base. I mean, two self doubting people talk to each other. We're going to support one another. You and I've done it, Patrick. I know we have, you know. It's when we were talking about some of the, the our, our, our common insecurities about physical appearance, we some of the conversations you and I've had made me feel much better, and we've solved absolutely nothing, you know. 
I appreciated you reaching out in those instances, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a two way street, you know? So I think it's, uh, connecting, you know, makes one feel connected. Oh man. It's like when I I sent the text about, I was having a crisis of, you know, seeing myself on video, which is a hard thing for me. Uh, Yeah. After I appreciate you responding because I afterwards, you know, my little guy in my head was going like, Oh, great. You just, you just wrote to two, two men and told them you feel insecure about how you feel. You know, it's like, I mean, it was like, it was like, I I said, my response to you guys is, is it was truly adolescent. I could just feel it, but it was like, but I was so glad that I did because that was real. That was what was going on with me. And that's, that's what, that's what, I I mean, I think we do that with a lot of people, but I, I certainly have come to understand that that's, for our for our our trio right here, I trust you guys that much. Well, look, and one of the, the the feedback I get about you a lot, Tom, is just people appreciate so much your your authenticity and your honesty about those kinds of things. That's good. Yeah. You don't you don't let that the should monster, you know, censor what you're going to say. Mm-hmm. No, so actually I've learned he's, he's much less of a problem to me these days. And I want people to know that it does get much easier to over time with practice. But the other thing is if he's anything, he's, he's, he's a guide to what I talk about, because it's like, if he says, don't, whatever you do, don't you dare say this fucking I'm going, I'll, you guys will know that in the next text. Because well, because oppositional behavior can be helpful. And listen, <laughs> and I and I've I've got plenty of it. I've got a long history of it, and you're absolutely right. Every symptom has its application. That's <laughs> yeah, it's like you know we label that as is is problematic, but my God, it's a, such a staple in recovery. Do the opposite of what you're saying. Uh, well, well, one 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 of the things, and we can say that with addiction or with the should monster too. But I say it a lot with when I'm working with eating disorders, especially when I've done eating disorder groups is I call it putting the fuck you in the right place. Cause what we're doing most of the time is putting the fuck you at ourselves. And then when people start to help us, we start putting it at them. You know, it's, it's like we, we, you know, we choose to get this treatment and then all of a sudden we dig our heels in and act like somebody's trying to make us do it. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's like, which, which can be a little confusing, but, but ultimately we, the, we really do. I love that. What you just said is that's the place for where, where we really do want to apply our, our wonderful and our, our, our quite strong and well-experienced oppositional behavior. We're pros at it, right? And we're great. Yeah. We, we applied it in, in a way that was not just, helpful for us. It yeah. Was just awesome. stand, just stand up, to, just stand up to the person you need to stand up to. And it happens to be living inside your head. That's right. That's that's right. Right. Yeah. Instead of fighting all all the windmills out there, you know, take on right. Right. Go for it. Now, now, before I know we're going into going farther into the to chapter five, but I, but while we're on this subject, I, I, I realized this morning, looking through your book, Alan, that there was a there was one of these little nutshells that was that was set aside in your book that we didn't actually I don't think we referred to specifically. And it's so much one of my favorites. I want to go back and it's in chapter four on page um, 84. Um, and it, it has to do with what we're talking about with just practice. And, and, you know, we, it says, it says, we don't suddenly live consciously. Waking up is a practice with, uh, with, with any practice, the key is small, steady effort. 
And I just, I think that's, that's, I think if I had to list maybe top five things that we repeat and, and do broken record kind of teaching about, that would be one of them. It's, it's like the idea is when you have a, a concept's not going to fix you, you know, the practice of a concept a couple of times is not going to do a damn thing, but steady practice. And I love, I love just the key is small. And it, you know, ba- you know, I think about what about Bob, the movie with baby steps, you know, small, steady, it's, it's, you know, it's like, and I, you know, I used to try not to refer to that because it was so silly, but it's like, it's so accurate, you know, baby steps, small, steady effort is how we get there. And, uh, and that, and that, and living consciously as, as any one of the three of us can say is that's, that, that's a, that's a, that'll be a lifelong practice. Yeah, that's right. How many times, how many times I will doze off today? I have no idea. And look at how relevant was what I read earlier. More and more and more, we are able to bring our behavior into alignment with our values and beliefs rather than our feelings and reactions. And they go, you know, this doesn't happen overnight. It, you know, it's, it takes a long time for us to get here and longer still for us to feel like it's real. But that's back to this point you're talking about is it, Mm -hmm. it is this slow, steady improvement. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it, and the more, you know, and it, I was always impressed with, with Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled, because he addressed an issue that I don't see addressed much in terms of self-help group, which were, or self-help books. It's this issue of uh, discipline. Mm-hmm. And he talked about that conscious effort of really taking time to address some of these issues that you're struggling with. And really focusing on these things, which I think is such an important thing. And look, let's segue into what we wanted to carry on in terms of this chapter from last time, and that this idea of an emotional center of gravity, which which we need to have this practice. Absolutely. Now that's talk about practicing. You know, when I was first learning karate, um, taekwondo specifically, in, in Vietnam on Hill Fifty Five. It's, it's an interesting story that we were getting prepared to go into this. Uh, I think it was called Operation Dragon Fist. I love the names of some of these things. <laughs> Dragon Fist, right? And um, so they brought two Korean Marines, or they assigned two Korean Marines to our unit to teach us hand-to-hand combat, and specifically Taekwondo. And so we didn't have any keys, right? Like you get right, the, right, right. We made ours out of bed sheets. <laughs> I mean, and, and it was so cool. I mean, and, and, and the dojo we were at, it had a cement floor, it had a roof over it, and then it had these Makariya boards where you practice punching on and stuff like that. But that was it. There was no, you know, you know, there, it wasn't luxurious in any form. It nothing, was, nothing snazzy about it. That's- <laughs> it was Spartan as you can get. But the first stance they taught us was, the horse dance, and they call it the translation. I don't remember the Korean word for it, but the translation into English is the immovable stance. And what you do is your legs are a little wider than shoulder feet apart, and you bend your knees and you kind of drop your center of gravity so it's like equally balanced over both feet. Well, it sounds like a simple thing to do, but try to hold that stance for 10 minutes your legs start to wobble, you start to get shaky. And and it was amazing just in that stance alone, because you're engaging your core muscles, you know, the muscles in your legs and stuff, your thighs, um, your quads, obviously, 
and your buttocks, all those things. What we would do is every night, and we went up there and trained with these guys six days a week. We had Sundays off. Every night, they would increase the time we would stay in that stance by a minute. So the first time we got in a stance, it was for three minutes. The next day, four minutes. By the time we were done training with them, we were almost in that stance for an hour. Wow. I mean, it was an amazing thing. And you couldn't do that. If we would have tried to do it an hour the first day that we were there, we wouldn't have been able to do it. But the, now, so that's one thing that's back to the practice issue. The emotional center of gravity issue is, is what we were learning was that if you manage the center of gravity, you're going to be able to stay in control of yourself in a combat situation the best you can. Now, you can't control what the opponent's doing, but you can control where you're coming from and how you engage in what you're doing. And that's what which, we were, which you, by the way, you just described emotional sobriety. Well, isn't it? It was so funny. Like you said before, we're not discovering something new here. Mm. We're talking about some what I would call almost universal truths. Yep. And we're seeing their application in many different ways. And especially here in terms of how can we better take care of ourselves? How can we learn to deal with the challenges that life sets before us? And I can do that much better if I'm grounded, if I'm supporting myself. And that's the importance of this whole focus on emotional center of gravity. It's really teaching us one way to support ourselves, one way to keep our balance. Because we talk about, Bill talked about balance all the time. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. yep, yep. as, as, as a balance uh, and and humility, right? As balance and humility is what he talked about. And this mm -hmm. is and, and so it's amazing to me that the that the analogy works. It's it it it's just like that physical balance, like we see in a gymnast. They master that so well. Like Simone Biles, when she's on that balance, oh, oh my god, oh my god, it's like she's on a floor. <laughs> I mean, you don't know she's standing on a four inch piece of wood. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's yeah. it's. Amazing to me, the skill. But look, all of that has to do, she is keeping her emotional center of gravity directly over that four inches. Mm -hmm. I mean, which is incredible, right? Like that's graduate school emotional sobriety. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I, mm -hmm. I have a hard time doing it when I'm standing on a floor now, nowadays. But <laughs> I mean, well, but, but see, I think that's a good point for us to make too is the idea is, is, you know, sort of like I said, you know, how many, how, in terms of what we were talking about with the last chapter of being living consciously, it's like, it's, you know, that's one of the things I always say, like all this stuff runs right down the center of us. It's not something we're going to in the future. It's like what we're doing is we're, our practice takes us closer and closer and closer to it. And even, even maybe even perfect balance is something we experience, but, but, but it's not for long. You know, right. we get it for a little bit, you know, and what you're talking about with the, with, with your training is a beautiful example of just practice of like, okay, we'll just add a minute each time, you know, but even in the day-to-day -day life, I mean, even in, if you're in a combat situation, it's like, 
you're not going to, if you're off, if you find yourself off balance, you don't have time to tell me if I'm wrong. I'm not, I'm not a combat veteran, but it's like, it's like, you don't have time to sit there and beat yourself up for being off. You just need to get back centered. Try to get back centered as quickly as possible and regain your balance and, 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 and do the best. And keep you. fighting, keep doing what you got to do next. And that's the other thing too, is that that's the other value. And I, and I really want people to hear that we couldn't, Focus on learning that in a combat situation. We had to step away from, right, that situation where there would be a sense of urgency, desperation, survival. Life and, and death. Practice in a situation that was where we could learn these things. And we had to develop the skill so it was available later on, right? right. That, was, that was the other thing that was taking place is, right, all of that practice was in preparation for. And, you know, I, I, love, I love John Wooden. I love sports psychology. I love trying to help athletes, you know, find their optimal performance. And, and once again, it's all this stuff we talk about is so relevant to, to performing, right? Your best in any kind of an athletic situation or any performance situation. An actor knows this. You know, um, a dancer knows this. I mean, all of these things. But but wouldn't had this great line. He says, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Yep. Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Mm -hmm. And there's so much relevance to that. I saw that the Marine Corps understood that. And we would go to great lengths. And the other thing is, is that what we see today in terms of performance psychology is that the more you can put yourself in those stressful situations where you're simulating what you're what you're going to be encountering, the better the training is. I mean, that's why when in boot camp we were crawling underneath a 30 caliber machine gun that was shooting across our over our heads <laughs> because we had to deal with. What is it like when you're in a situation where if you make the wrong move, you're going to get killed? Mm -hmm. you that brings me to that brings me to my question, which yeah. is, um, what have you found is the best way to uh, prepare for emotional emotional centeredness? Well, first of all, one of the things that I encourage people to do, Patrick, and I was going to give an example of how I, I lost my center of gravity for a bit the other night. Because I think it's great when we're personal about these things and we can share. And even though we've been around a long time, that we're still figuring this stuff out. Right? Well, that, that's the thing about us. We never have to look back very far to find an example. <laughs> we don't, <have> we <laughs> don't even we don't even have to have a good memory. <laughs> Thank God for that part. That's that's changing a little bit now as the older I get. But but um, <laughs> it's great. Um so ask the question again, Patrick. So I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, what's the what have you found is the best way to prepare for uh, that emotional centeredness? I'm back now. I'm back now. I lost okay. my. <laughs> but look, I, I could ask instead of just act, acting like I knew what you were talking. Yeah. Yeah. I could ask you and get get aligned with you again, and I didn't. Didn't just pretend. Uh, well, you you also. I mean, now maybe I'm over metaphoring here, but but you know, you also reached out for a helping hand. That's yeah, right. you, I mean, that's what you did. You you were you were off balance, so you reached out and 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 Patrick, Pat, you know, you knew not to reach toward me because I'm the one who just pushed you, and 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 and, and you reached out to Patrick, and he he grabbed your arm and helped you stay up. That's <laughs> 
one of the things I tell people, and this was, this was not my suggestion, Bill Wilson actually said this. He says, if we examine every disturbance we have, every emotional disturbance we have, whether it's great or small, we will find at the root of it some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demands. That, that was his formula right there. He said, you want to you wanna learn about this stuff? Do this. Examine, reflect on yourself when you're upset about something, what's going on with you, right? What does this tell you about you at that moment? What, in another way to say it is what's missing, right? You know, my, my sponsor, Tom, um, he went, is, uh, is, wasn't last week. This was a few days ago, I should say. I got to put it as last week, but it wasn't that long ago. It was three days ago now. So he's going back to Hawaii now after uh, being with us over two months. Mm-hmm. And so some of his NA friends here, he's got a bunch of sponsees and stuff, had put together a dinner for him on Wednesday night. And they weren't sure that we wanted to go because of the kids and whether it would be appropriate in the place. And we thought, well, we'll try it. But when I, but I told Tom when he asked me, hey, would you want to go? I says, yeah, that was like on Monday. Well, Wednesday night was the dinner and he forgot to tell this guy, Barry, who was organizing it. So it didn't happen. And I was disappointed and I started feeling left out, not a part of, you know, and I called to try to go ahead. And, and as it turned out, and this is always, there's a hidden treasure. Well, they made reservations, but the people at that end screwed it up. They didn't even have reservations for that night, but they could not accommodate a table of, it would have been 11 with the four of us. Mm-hmm. So I helped them get their reservation for their party of, of seven that night that they were mm-hmm. going and got that on the books for them to go. But I felt disappointed. And then I started making up some stories like, like Tom was saying in my head about what this was about. And, um, and really what it was about was just an oversight. It, there was no intention or meaning behind it. Now, maybe Barry thought, man, I'm not so sure Alan would want to go. And it, because of the kind of situation, it was a high-end steakhouse where people are going in in suit jackets and stuff like that. It would not have been conducive. And, it, and then Tom confirmed that to me. Mm-hmm. But I'm taking it personally. I'm off my center of gravity. Tom says, look, it was that people were thoughtful about you and didn't think it would be fit. And Alan, I got to tell you, when we went there, it would have been terrible for CeCe and Maddie to be there. They would not have enjoyed it. The place was crowded. First of all, people weren't wearing masks and they weren't COVID, you know, in my sense, sensible at all about the way they set up the tables and stuff. And he said, and it was so loud, you could, we couldn't even hear each other talk. So it turned out that all of this internal chatter I had, where I knocked myself off balance, had nothing to do with me. It had to right. do with actually when I thought they weren't being thoughtful for me, they were being thoughtful for me and they were anticipating. Now, you know, would I have liked to maybe have had that choice and they'd said that? Of course, but that's secondary, right? We turn mm-hmm. well for what we want when it's not available. We appreciate and have gratitude for what was. And that's what was able to bring me back to center. I could let go of all yeah. of these fantasies of being left out mm-hmm. because there's a lot of pain for that from my childhood. Yep. I was a kid that was a horrible athlete. You did not want me on your baseball team. You did not want me. You didn't want me on the fast pitch team. 
basketball, forget it. I could mm-hmm. kind of run up and down the court, but I couldn't shoot the ball. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. so I was that kid that nobody wanted on their teams. And that stung, man. I took that uh, very personally when I was a kid. So the remnants of that started to bubble up again. Yep. And I started to feel that. I talked to Jess about it. And, you know, we kind of chatted through some of this. So like Tom said, putting, you know, naming it sometimes help you tame it. Mm-hmm. And so we were able through a dialogue, I was able to get my center of gravity back in within 24 hours. That's well, see that. And one of the things I always tell people too, is, you know, you know, measure, measure, measure your progress in response time, you know, you know, so we, you know, think, think about how long it would have taken you before, you know, which, which we're really comparing to earlier on never, you know, I would, I would have never got, I would have carried it for years, but, but, it, but it does get quicker. But the other thing I want to be sure we point out for, for listeners too, is to look at ourselves to do what you're talking about doing does not mean there's that somebody else on the other side of that could not have done better, or even sometimes has not done, done you wrong. It's like, because what I realized in my own exploration of myself is I would have a guy in my head that basically would, would, would take the position of if I can demonstrate that somebody else on out there fucked up, then I, then I can focus there instead of on me. But what I've learned since then is, and it's not to let them off the hook. It's actually a matter of what order I do this in. Yes. Always start with myself, you know, and, and very often. And I think this is the case there where you're finding out that if, if somebody's guilty of something, it's it's simply a matter of literal thoughtlessness. I, they didn't think of it that way. It's like but even even if somebody has d- done something that I afterwards, I've, I've kind of found my own center of gravity back. It's like very often if I think I still don't appreciate what that guy said or did, it's like. Most of the time I'm going to shrug it off and go like, I don't need to do anything about it. But if I do need to do, if it is somebody, if it's one of you guys, you know, then it matters to me and I'm going to, you know, I need to clean it up. Then I'm going to be in a better position to say, Hey, listen, I need to sit down and talk with you about this. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, and you know, and that's that other part of this, Tom, and you and I have talked about it is that I can see my demons that are inside of me, we call them demons. Let's let, let me be a little bit more compassionate. The hurts in me that inform mm-hmm. paranoia. Yeah. <laughs> right? That right. inform my suspiciousness. What happens is one of the things in terms of staying centered, I'm able to see the positive intention in people's behavior rather than assigning yes. or attributing these you know, malevolent motivations that even begins with the idea. So that if the conversation in my head is, is, you know, the, from the suspicious mind, I think he did this because da, 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 the next voice can simply say, but maybe not. Yes, that's right. See, maybe not. That, that can get you back to your center of gravity. See, mm-hmm. Things like that, these little kinds of tips we have and, and look, as well as examining these things, you know, if you want to learn more to do this, if you go on my website, I developed a chart where you write down what happened, you write down what your reaction was to it. And then in, in columns three and four, you try to identify what your unenforceable rules were, what your demands were. And then what's the unhealthy dependence that that generated it, those demands? And then in the last column is what you can do to get your center of gravity back. 
Yes. People are using this and they are responding and saying, you know, just like, you know, we read the feedback you got, the feedback I get is, my God, this is so helpful. Oh, people, people bring that up all the time in the Thursday group. They love it's such a practice. You know, what you've done is you've taken initially what what Bill was talking about and, and talk about turning it into something operational. I mean, you've you've operationalized that into that four step. It's four, right? That's right. That's yeah, right. four, just four, four steps. It's like, it's like, but if you walk through it and, and, and the more you, again, with practice, the more you do it, the more natural it becomes to think that way. That's right. In appendix B, I've kind of updated that, that chart. It's on page 307 of the new book for people to use. And it's just a wonderful tool for people to struggle with this stuff and start to deal with it. So look, you know, what an important topic, because the more we practice getting our center of gravity back, the better we get at it. And you know, this is a tennis, mm-hmm. player, right? You know, one of the, they say, you know, it's going to take you a thousand balls, hitting a thousand balls to get this thing figured out. And that's okay. But how do you hit a thousand balls? By hitting the first one and then the second one. And then just continuing on is to slow, gradual improvement and that's what we're really looking for here with emotional sobriety right practice 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 and look and what this does is it defeats the perfectionist that Mm -hmm. says i gotta have this figured out now (laughs) yeah and what we're and talk about oppositional we'll we'll go back to that what we're really we're really saying to fuck you to that because what we're saying is he goes you need to have this figured out right now and by the way, and that's what the message of the perfectionist says. It won't. It, it perfectionism is is always pointing at us. It doesn't. It doesn't own it itself. It says I, you have to do this. You have to do this perfectly. And you know, and, and a nice, kind oppositional position is, well, too bad, because it's not going to happen. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, that's, and and then you know the other side says, well, that's terrible and. You know, and then it wants to to denigrate us, right? Yeah, and, and what we need to learn to do is to be for our own self. And say, I'm so sorry for your loss. You know, it's like I'm. You know, <laughs> I know you're disappointed, but it's like, hey, look, that's this this being able to have a healthier relationship with ourselves is also what you know. When I read that paragraph, you know, integrating these different parts of us and finding a way. I mean, you know, it. It could have been a paraphrase of what Fritz Perl said about mental health. He said, mental health is an appropriate balance and coordination of all of what we are. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about here, that if you listen to Tom and what he was just saying and how to respond to that, that's the appropriate balance and coordination of these different parts of ourselves. And, and it's, that's the other thing. That takes an awareness of the, the dialogue that is going on, and then it takes a willingness to experiment and try some things on differently. Yep. Well, this is great. I'm glad that we took some time to explore this. Um, Patrick, any final thoughts about this before we close this, this podcast today? Well, just that um, if you could time travel back to young Alan, you could tell him that, uh, you know, you're pretty damn good at tennis and uh, you know how to box as well. And yes. so uh, if he just holds out for a few more decades, you know, That's he's going to be all right. You know? and, and look, that was the other thing. I evaluated myself and compared myself to everyone else. 
And I was a very late bloomer in terms of athletic skills and coordination. It didn't come to me in my early years. I got better and better and better. And partly because I took the time to practice, get some instruction, right? You know, you know, no, you know, fill in the gaps in knowledge I have and stuff like that. You know, my dear friend, Roger, who you guys see on Thursday nights, mm -hmm. we love to tell the story. I met Roger back in 1979 when I was up at UC Davis starting my doctorate in clinical psychology. And so I was in a clinical psych program, a very unique one. We were in the school of medicine rather than in a department of psychology. So it was very different than, than the typical program, right? Because it was very hands-on. And Roger was in a PhD program that was studying um, workspace environment in space. So it was about optimizing your physical situations to be able to live together under long periods of time with other people without wanting to kill each other, like the rats do when you all put them in a real small cage right? <laughs> and they just want to go after each other. So this, this, they, they had this incredible grant where they're teaching people about social engineering in terms of physical space. And so he was in that program studying to get that PhD. And so I, I love tennis and I was dabbling in it up to that point. Roger was a great athlete. I mean, he was a, you know, a star in his high school basketball team. He was a phenomenal tennis player. I mean, he was just all around good athlete. Mm -hmm. So we'd go out and we'd play tennis together while we were up in Davis. And uh, I literally, I think he let me do this. This is the sadistic part of Roger. I'd be up like five, one. I won five games. He won one. I was ready to close out the set. And we'd be on the changeover. No, it would be 4-1 or something like, or 5-2, something like that. And he would look at me and he said, okay, I'm not going to let you win another game. And I'm going, what do you mean? You're not going to let me win. And he would not let me win the game. <laughs> <laughs> he beat my ass and I'd get so upset and frustrated. And, he, and, I, and I told him later on, I think that you – are single-handedly responsible for me probably spending over $100,000 in tennis lessons <laughs> to get better. <laughs> well, well, well played, Roger. Well played, Roger. <laughs> oh, that's great. That brings back a lot of nice memories. Yeah. Next week, we'll be talking about taking things personally, how not to. I'm an expert in the other one, but I, okay, I'll work on this. Then. Okay. <laughs> All right. See you guys next week. Tinge your life. Tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative with whomever you're with Then with glass in hand and children on one knee Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me It ain't a crime to be a human Never be ashamed to be yourself Rest assured that whatever you're doing entertain me like nobody else so here's to us my old friends until it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again with glass in hand and children on me bring some stories bring your stories back to me